Greetings and welcome to Season 4 of Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hard-working people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. And I want to take a hot minute to thank Martina Hernandez-Cortez out of the west side of Chicago for supporting this podcast over at Patreon. Martina, I'm grateful for your listenership, for your kind words, and for your support of the project. The story that you shared with me about your working life bolstered my resolve to keep doing what I'm doing here. So thanks a lot. And I also, at long last, want to take a moment to thank Rotem Steinberg out in Neukölln. Rotem's been mastering the episodes since I started this whole project. He's also been teaching me and supporting me (laughs) and being really patient with me. And he's a super good guy. Rotem, I don't even know if you listen to these things, but if you do, I want to thank you. You make it all sound better, and you empower me to make mistakes. And so thanks, man. And look, if you, my dear listener, if you don't happen to be a highly skilled sound engineer, or you don't have the means to patronize this project, we're all good. But maybe you could be so kind as to show your support by leaving a rating, leaving a review, Or maybe tell a friend or two about studs. You might just want to tell them about this episode coming up right here to kick off season four. Because this episode features Drea Doré. Drea is a stripper and a Hall of Fame burlesque dancer. I learned about her from studs alum, strip club DJ Johnny Spaeth. I asked Johnny if he could recommend one dancer from his many years in the DJ booth, and boy didn't miss a beat, pointing me straight to Drea. (laughs) And now I know why. Drea is a tour de force. She's also a pleasure to chat with. We talk about, well, we talk about dancing naked in front of people. Both of us do it. One of us gets paid. Now one of us gets cited for disorderly conduct. (laughs) One of us titillates, one of us nauseates, but such are the injustices of the world, my friend. But Drea, Drea, she is just another level performer. She makes it rain. Tune in to hear Drea talk about how the driving forces of music and community and cash money kept her in what she calls the gray area of humanity for a decade and a half. And in all those rotations around the sun and around the pole, Drea created an ever-evolving aesthetic. And as a black woman who refuses to countenance being boxed in, Drea developed some hard-earned wisdom about the intersectionality of race and gender, and respectability politics. 
Now, I should say, it turns out that my conversation with Drea coincides with a turning point in her professional life as she pivots towards family and some other projects. Yeah, you know, I I link to some of those projects in our show notes. So this conversation turns out to be a retrospective of sorts. And so it was an honor to reflect with her. So, my friends, let's pop on our pasties, strip down, and dive into season four with the Rose City showgirl, Drea Doré. Drea Doré, welcome to Studs. Thank you so much for being here. How do you describe what you do? Well, thank you for having me. And it is a pleasure to get to chat about what I do and have done. So I am a strip teaser, uh, showgirl. It's it's kind of an interesting hodgepodge of working in a, a club as a modern day stripper meets a neo burlesque performer. I started stripping when I was back in 2005, and then I got into burlesque in 2010. So yeah. That's, it's a very wordy answer for what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask how you got on this path? I just, I graduated from high school and I was working part-time retail job and we would go out to this underage gay club called The Escape. And one of our good friends had really started getting into drag and uh, we would go to support him at the club And we just started getting into like making costumes and really just having fun with the whole theatrics of just what it was like to go out and party and have fun. And um, a lot of the 90s club kid culture was really appealing to us at that time. So I was really curious about how I would take sort of our adventures of going out, wearing all this makeup and getting glamorous and how I could monetize that and turn that into something that I could do all the time. And when I had a a good old giant desktop computer and dial up internet, I would go online and try to research as much as I possibly could about these show people or like these performance artists and such. So in 2005, I had come across this burlesque performer, Catherine Delish, and her website. And I read about her becoming a a stripper. And she really kind of spun the whole aesthetic of like a 40s showgirl, 50s showgirl into her own mix with with working in like a, a strip club in the 90s. And she would go and do these competitions and she would make these amazing costumes. And, and I remember just being so blown away by her image. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So I was like, you know what, I guess I need to become a stripper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember emailing a few bars around town here in Portland and asked about auditions, but I, I was like 19 at the time. So I was a minor and most of these places, of course, when you're working in a club that serves alcohol, you can't be on the floor until you're 21. So I thought, you know what? I really want to do this. I really want to get into performing and I want to be, I want to be a showgirl and I want to do it in a modern way. It's sort of the contemporary version. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I thought, why not 
do something like this. Why not become a burlesque performer? So that's kind of how I got my my big inspiration to do it. That's a very long answer, but... <laughs> no, it's great. I have two questions about that. Okay. The first is, can you describe the aesthetic of Catherine Delish and why it appealed to you so much? Well, I mean, we look completely different from one another. She is a pale, red-haired woman. You know, I'm a black woman and I look I look nothing like this lady, but... <laughs> It was her style and overall aesthetic that was so appealing to me. And I think, too, growing up watching a lot of old musicals, and it was really cool to see her as this ideal image of femininity and glamour that I had always loved and appreciated from childhood. And I would go to garage sales with my mom as a child, and I would always find these great, like, 40s outfits or just pieces of clothing that people used to wear. And and I would just collect things and just keep them in my room and just love them and cherish them. So it was cool to see her create this image of herself as sort of this glamorous, sexy lady in this very beautifully curated image of the 40s showgirl with the big cascading hair. And I just, I wanted that. I wanted a piece of it, but I wanted to do it in my way. The image that really got me was her in these pasties. I believe she was wearing pasties in a G-string and she had these giant pink ostrich feather fans and she's just posed in this statuesque look with the red lips and the cascading Veronica Lake waves and these gigantic plumes of feathers. And I just thought it was so beautiful. I was like, damn, (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted a piece of that so bad. I was like, "That's, that's it. Um, in addition to Catherine Delish, uh, was the burlesque performer Pearl Noir. I mean, I love Catherine, but I also remember seeing Pearl Noir at Strip Strip Parade and at the Aladdin. And she came out on stage, and here's this incredible black performer that had this entire theater just eating out of the palm of her hand. And I was so struck and so moved. I just began sobbing and I had the pleasure to meet her that evening. And that was the first time we ever met. And it was such a beautiful moment between two black people. And I just was like, you can do this. Yeah. Like she did it. She showed me that it's possible. And then it ruined me for life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Satan is a waiting. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So so can I ask, like in reflecting on those early days as you were aspiring to fill the big, probably really tall shoes of Catherine Delish, oh my goodness. what did you hope it would be like well, when you got on stage? I think for one, I, I knew that I could never do what she does because there's only one Catherine Delish, you know? She was just sort of the muse that helped bringing that dream into reality. And I think what I hoped would happen was that somebody out there would just get it. They would, they would see what I was doing. They would see my aesthetic and style and maybe they would help guide me into a place where I could fit in amongst other people that were also in the same wavelength or were a part of the same vision I I think it was just finding a community and that was what I hoped would happen. Finding the people that were feeling the same way or wanted to create the same things and that we would 
we would connect. And then in that network, it would just grow. And then more things would come about, whether it be shows or, you know, traveling, performances, et cetera. Yeah. I, <laughs> forgive me if this question is unwelcome. And and if it is, we can just scratch it from the record okay. um, while I beg for your forgiveness. But here it goes. <laughs> no, it's okay. How much of your desire to participate in this culture was you connecting to your sensuality and your sexuality Mm -hmm. and your desire to express that? I felt the most beautiful when when I was put together and I had the corset on and I, I was all styled. And I think that for me tapped into this dream of what I wanted to be and what I wanted to embody. And I always felt really good about myself when I would get dressed up and, you know, have all of these lovely costumes. Well, they weren't really costumes to me at the time. They were just, it was just clothing that really just embodied the vision of, of the ideal woman that I wanted to be. And to me, that was really sensual. Having that feeling of empowered beauty of my own choosing was really the sensual part. It was just really fun to, to play with that image and to, you know, flirt and sometimes toss out a line or two from like a film noir movie and see if somebody got it. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? So it was, it was kind of like playing dress up in a way, but you know, no matter where you go, there you are. So there, there's always going to be a little bit of, of the silliness, the goofiness, because that's just your personality, right? It comes through whether, whether we want to manufacture ourselves into these very you know, strong, rigid set of ideals like i'm gonna look like this and but then you're still who you are innately deep down so yeah yeah. to me i like the sensuality of of the creation i like the the making up the the glamour of it but i mean it's definitely evolved it's changed quite a bit now where i am in life so i want to get into that evolution Mm -hmm. but let's start where it all begins can you talk about landing your first gig and talk a little bit about the aesthetic sensibility that you brought to your first dancing gig. I think my first burlesque gig was this woman who was doing go-go dancing and was a manager for a burlesque troupe. Raylene Courtney was her name. And I had answered a Craigslist ad for go-go dancers and we sat down and had coffee together. And at the time, I was just painfully broke and <laughs> it's just tragic. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, like I remembered seeing photos of the dance troupe that she had managed. And so her name, I, I recognized that. And so we, we talked about that. And I was like, you know, I really love burlesque and I've always been really keen on just getting into it, but I'm, I'm not really sure how. And so... She kept my info and fast forward some years later when Facebook finally opened up to the general public and you didn't have to just have a college email and MySpace was still a thing. Right. <laughs> this is how far yeah. back we're going. And my friends at the bar that I was dancing at, at the time I was dancing at Mary's, they were like, everybody's on Facebook. You need to get on Facebook. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. So I got on there and Raylene wrote me a message and was like, hey, do you remember me? We met years ago. I'm actually producing a burlesque show at the Hawthorne Theater. 
and would love it if you if you'd like to be cast in it. And I said, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I wrote something about like what I would love to like flounce around in my fancy underpinnings or something just kind of like <laughs> silly. <laughs> she remembers it better than I do. But yeah, uh, that was my first ever gig is a sin savvy production at the Hawthorne theater on the bar side. And I made these giant poker card playing card fans and did like a fan dance to Wheel of Fortune by K-Star. Nice. I have to say, um, I love the term sin savvy. How clever is that? Yeah. Oh, good old Raylene. She's great. She had it figured out. Yeah, she's amazing. What did it feel like to be on stage at the Hawthorne Theater for this sin savvy production the first night? I felt really good about it, but I also was so immediately overwhelmed by my nerves. I do remember feeling really beautiful, though. I was really happy to just be involved and, and to do the show and finally have a way to, to start working on what it was that I had dreamed about doing. Now, you were a solar mm-hmm. performer at this and so you had to go up on stage by yourself, mm-hmm. flaunting your thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had been working at the strip club for a while, so I was comfortable wearing the scantily clad outfits. Like, doing my first ever audition at a strip club was so much more nerve-wracking and terrifying than getting up on stage and doing a burlesque routine or like a playing card fan dance. (laughs) So, okay. Yeah. How long had you been working at the strip club before you uh, showed up at the Hawthorne theater? Let's see here. So from 2005 and then I got into burlesque in 2010. Okay. So, so it sounds like we need to talk about both, right? We need to talk about your burlesque career. We mm-hmm. need to talk about your strip club career. Since we're already talking about burlesque and where it all got started with mm-hmm. Raylene Courtney, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about it because for for a great many reasons, like burlesque is as American as apple pie. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I sense... That there's an underlying, maybe even like a brazen sense of humor to the burlesque thing. Like, how would you describe the sense of humor that goes into it? Because it's titillating, of course, Mm -hmm. but it's also like kind of hilarious. So what are these things and how do they meet? Well, the thing about burlesque is when you look at like the history of burlesque, if you want to take it back to the days of, you know, the orchestra and the pit and the catwalk and the theaters, I mean, the, the core of it, it is the striptease. That's, I mean, that's integral to it. And so if you look at the history of striptease, what you see today in the modern strip club is the evolution of where the burlesque of like the forties went. And then, you know, you have sexual revolution, you have all of these things that happen and evolve and change. So what we see today with like the big heels and the the stripper pole and like the cute bikinis and it's just the evolution of striptease. And so it's cool to see how 
burlesque performers, if you take like neo burlesque performers and like modern day strip club dancers, I mean, it all sort of blurred. There's really, the humor is there for both. So, you know, you could have a stripper who's a burlesque performer that has like lots of layering, lots of costume pieces. And then there's also a giant prop and maybe they're doing something satirizing a political situation and it turns into, you know, a striptease and it's, you know, sexy and it's funny, you know, and they're just wearing a bikini and it's, but they're still killing it. They're still executing what they're trying to do. They're making it work. So hopefully that did answer the question. <laughs> I know that was it, like a very it does. answer. It did and it does. So what does it take for you to plan a burlesque routine? Like, how do you establish a motive Mm-hmm. and a, a look and bring it all together. Talk about your planning. My planning, I'm usually inspired by music first. I will hear something that will immediately give me an image in my mind of what I feel the music represents. And I just start to piece it all together. I mean, I've, I've gone the route of listening to classic, like bump and grind tunes of like, burlesque orchestra stuff and they're always fun but sometimes I'll hear something I mean for instance like Carousel by Susie Sue and the Banshees and just the images that it brings to mind and how I could execute that with my physical form and have it make sense to people that are watching it is the challenge so so you're pretty serious about burlesque you spent you know, a decade plus cultivating your chops and perfecting Mm -hmm. your routine. And you became, I hope you don't mind saying, like very well-respected and well-recognized. And you started partaking in burlesque competitions. Yeah. So why compete and what are the competitions like? I always feel that competing with yourself is one thing. I'm, I'm not interested in being anybody else. And I don't want to be, I I really just want to be the best version of myself hmm. and I just go out and do my thing. And I think when I was younger, I was so much more harder on myself about not doing an epic job of, you know, what I felt I could execute flawlessly. <laughs> like, right, right. Yeah. Just, I mean, any, any of the time when you, you think about your younger self, like, oh, you know, I'd probably just tell myself to lighten the fuck up. <laughs> so <laughs> were you, were you intense about it like is that what you would say to your younger self like lighten the fuck up a little bit oh, yeah. And, yeah like it's all good <laughs> Just, yeah. you know I, I remember one time I was performing and we used to have this big nightclub in Portland called the Barracuda Club and it had this big huge stage and this was another Raylene Courtney produced event and I was still relatively new to burlesque and I went out there and I had this 1950s prom dress that I had turned into a burlesque piece. And um, the dress was really tight. And so I zipped myself into it. And then when I was performing, I got stuck in the dress. Oh, no. And then it was like, holy shit, you know, immediate improv. Like, what do you do? (laughs) Because this, like, my whole routine got trashed. So I made it work and it turned into kind of a comedic thing. And I look back on it now and I'm like, yeah, that was fun. Like that was a great opportunity to do something awesome with this, this moment of like complete surprise to me. 
but I burst into tears. I oh. had all these plans with like the footage that I wanted to use. I wanted to get into these festivals and I just had so, I was being so hard on myself about it. And I was just, I just lost it and was crying and made, you know, made the impression that I, I was probably a wackadoo to some other performers. And <laughs> yeah. I look back on that now and I realize, oh, you know what? It happens. Shit happens. And in, in a way, it's actually one of the best things that could happen to you. You know, if your costume gets fucked up, it's fine. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. The world yeah. goes on. Yeah, it goes on. Indeed it does. So, so. The competitive nature, I'm sure, drove you. And I know that burlesque means more to you, much more to you than just competition. And we talked a little bit about what burlesque means in the broader historical context. Yeah. But I can't pivot from burlesque to talk about your world in strip clubs without asking you yeah. what might be a really simple question. And I hope it doesn't bore you, but <laughs> I really want to know like what burlesque means to you? Burlesque means to me community and an identity. I really loved creating this image of oneself and embodying it. And I think sometimes we look at people who, who change their appearance as running away from themselves. Like, oh, there's something wrong with that person. I think we get kind of a perverted like voyeuristic thrill out of watching somebody constantly alter, you know, maybe it's their hair color, maybe they get a lot of cosmetic surgery or like, we love watching that stuff. We love watching cosmetic surgery shows and just, you know, makeover shows, like watching somebody evolve. Like I was able to create this look and embody all of it. And I actually, that kind of ties into like the stripper culture of Portland a lot of dancers, you know, they start, a lot of them go by their, their moniker, they go by their stage name and they kind of become the, the image of whatever it is that they want to be. And I mean, I saw that in like drag culture, but I realized that what burlesque was for me and what it has now evolved into is Sandria Dore is still very much a part of me. And I will always love that glamour and the glitz and the makeup and the hair, but it's just a facet of who I am and what I like to create and play with. And I don't want to just be this image anymore. Mm. Burlesque for me is just really, it's sort of a fun way for me to express the physical art that I like to make versus what I like to paint and make with my hands or creating costumes, you know, sort of the fantastical fun of life in this delightful existence that we have on the planet. <laughs> so, Yeah, it really is fantastical, isn't it? Isn't that perhaps a, a central tenet of what burlesque is? It's a fantastical expression. Yeah, I mean, it's you have this fun fantasy that you can bring to life in front of an audience and... I mean, the neo-burlesque movement, too, really has been able to just expand and grow. And you see so many different styles and decades of, of looks, fashion, et cetera, that influence performers. Now, with the neo-burlesque movement, you can create more and there's more room. It's, it's so much more flexible for all kinds of people to go out there and express themselves 
and, you know, expand upon their sensuality if they want to. And sometimes people are like completely naked and that's part of their performance. And some people are, are not. It's really cool to see how it's evolved and the kind of communities that have entered the realm of, of burlesque and what it means. I feel like it's just an ever-growing art form. Yeah, it's cool that it's growing and it's cool that it's evolving. And yeah, you've grown and you've evolved with it. But while you've been doing that, mm-hmm. you've also been working in strip clubs in Portland. Mm-hmm. Now, as loyal listeners to this podcast will know, <laughs> on the second season, we had on DJ Johnny Shiitake, who Johnny. was the... He was uh, the um, DJ at Sassy's Mm -hmm. in Portland. And if people listen to that, they know that the Portland strip club scene is unlike anything else in the world. I think I did the math and I believe there is one strip club for every resident of Portland. Is that true? (laughs) (laughs) There's 50 strip clubs. It's the highest per capita in the United States. And there's quite a scene there. And maybe we could begin Mm -hmm. by having you build on what Johnny began to do, which is to describe the strip club scene in Portland and how it is really different than maybe any place anywhere in the world. Well, I would say that one of the biggest differences about Portland strip clubs is... The dancers have a little bit more control over their overall look. And you also can play music that you like. And it's not solely based off of what your customer wants to hear or or the demographic. I'm walking a fine line with that, though, because it's still a business and you're still trying to bring in a particular customer that's going to spend money. I would say one of the biggest differences... You can have a dancer in Converse dancing on stage to, you know, the Velvet Underground versus working at a club where you had to wear a dress. You could not go on the floor if you didn't have enough makeup on. You had to shave everything. The house mom was very particular on the rules and the floor manager would send you back down to the dressing room if you weren't appropriate, quote unquote, to the standard of the club. You can have lots of tattoos. You can have lots of piercings. That's definitely changing in other states, but there's still plenty of clubs that are just not, they're not okay with dancers having body modifications and will refuse to hire you. Hmm. You can be a little bit more expressive here and your personality can come through in a way with you know, your choice of music or your style of dress. It's different. Yeah, and Johnny was telling me that people will go for lunch and have a (laughs) steak and a beer. Yeah, I mean, the A-crop is known for their steaks. You can go in, have a steak, and watch the girls dance. It's always interesting saying girls because one thing I I would like to note for people is that there are dancers that are not, they do not identify as female, but they have female presenting bodies. And so they dance because they understand that they can make money off of the physical vessel that is not their identity. So you have this whole world of people who understand that they can monetize their physical self and what people would assume their gender to be based off of just what they see. So it's really cool that the dialogue is opening up. So I'm meeting all kinds of dancers who were just like, yeah, I'm gender non-binary and I work at a strip club. 
<laughs> it's really cool. Yeah. Can we talk about some of these gender dynamics sure. in strip clubs? Mm-hmm. I know that Portland at least sees itself as the vanguard of questioning. It sees itself as contributing to opening the marketplace of ideas on LGBTQ plus issues. And I hope that that's true. I hope that Portland lives up to the reputation it seeks to cement for itself in this regard. For the most part, Mm -hmm. you have women and people who present as women Mm -hmm. dancing. And you have, I've come to learn, both men and women in the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like more than perhaps you know, my image or maybe our listeners' image of a strip club, Mm -hmm. you have a pretty diverse audience that you're dancing for. Mm -hmm. And I have a bunch of questions about that, one of which is how, if at all, do you change the tone or content of your performance based on your perception of the gender dynamics of the audience? Hmm. Well, I'm a cis woman. I'm a, I'm a black woman. I do identify as somebody who is basically queer, but you see my marriage. I'm, I'm like in a, a hetero marriage. So I think you just kind of get a feel for what the audience is looking for. And it can be frustrating when you go out on stage and you hear a song you really love and you're like, yeah, I'm going to rip out like some badass whole trick and so like you're like yeah like i'm just gonna go out and i'm just gonna go hard and maybe you've got like a bachelor party if they're like come dance for the bachelor like come over here and so depending on the club rules and dynamic what you can actually do and not get in trouble with the staff there is also like how you need to perform so Sometimes people will come into a club and they'll be like, "Uh, how come you're not, you know, doing this? Or how come you're not touching the the groom or whatever? And it's like, well, I can't. They're like, nobody's looking. It's fine. You know, and and then maybe they're throwing a bunch of money. You go over there, you dance for them. You're talking to them. You're cracking jokes. You're flirting. You're being silly. And then you have like other people on the other side of the stage who are, do a flip, get on the pole. Come on, like show me your, like what's your hardest (laughs) trick? And so you're like, working these these two opposing sides so you're trying to find the happy medium <laughs> where okay like how do i get as much money as i possibly can for the number of songs that i'm up here on stage and also maybe getting a dance or two and making sure people leave the stage feeling somewhat you know satisfied with what happened in this exchange i've danced for people who were you look at them they're dead silent very stoic and Maybe they throw up a dollar and then you go up to them and you're like, hey, how's it going? They just stare at you. Hmm. And then there's somebody who's very talkative, who's spending a little bit of money and they're being friendly. And then you go up to the person who didn't say anything and you just say, hey, would you like to do a dance? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And next thing you know, you've danced for them all night long. So you never know. It's, It's such a, it really is just like a, coin toss (laughs) like yeah i'd imagine yeah are you any more or less comfortable or empowered or inspired to dance for an audience that has more people who present as female um 
I don't really think about it that way. The whole point is, is like cash is king, right? You're trying to make as much money as possible. And then you can go home and put Arnica all over your legs. <laughs> so sometimes you can be dancing for, you know, women or female presenting people, and they can be so degrading and disrespectful and rude and heinous. Oh, really? I and really didn't want to know that. Yeah. <laughs> It can be really tough. It, you know, it's, it really is just, some people just don't act right. They, some people show up no matter what their gender is, what their identity is, and they can be just as disgusting and terrible. They show up, they're rude, they're disrespectful. Maybe they grab you or they think that it's okay to, or they just, they're bossing you around or they're trying to, like they're trying to kind of get a rise out of you, like very abusive behavior. It's really just a personality and how somebody perceives huh. what it's like. I don't know whether I'm heartened by that or or <laughs> totally, you know, disoriented by that. But I do mm-hmm. have a curiosity about this particular problem. Mm-hmm. Portland is, I don't know, five, seven, eight percent black. Mm-hmm. You're a person of color yeah. and you are on stage in front of what I can only imagine. Predominantly white people, yeah. Pretty pretty damn white audience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very white. And there's a history there. Yeah. And there are problematics to that. Mm-hmm. And if you're comfortable talking about it, I would like to know how you proceed to do your work given all of those problematics. Well... Um, it's definitely evolved over time. When I first started dancing, I remember auditioning for someone and they told me they often didn't hire black dancers because we were late all the time. Oh, Jesus. So of course, like the standard is set. Like I could not fuck up. I couldn't be late no matter what, because I'm just, apparently I'm just racially predisposed. It's just like, I'm just going to be late anyway. It's, oh, you know, had something to do with that. So it was just really, it was really frustrating. And they were like, I'm going to give you a chance though, because I think you're really pretty and it would be nice to, you know, mix things up here. So I was like, Ugh. okay. And I was so young. I really wanted to work. And so I, I put up with it. You like you grin and bear it sometimes when you want something. So I was on the schedule and of course called a cab and something happened with my cab driver And they were like, I'm sorry, I got stuck in traffic. So I ended up being late. And I... (laughs) (laughs) You got to deal with that shit. Well, and that was the... It's like that feeling where you're like, great. And I showed up and I was like, I'm so sorry. My cab driver got turned around. It's like, I'm here. And like, I was ready. And they were like, you know, I had to replace you. I'm really sorry. But remember what I told you. Uh, You I gave you a chance, but you were late. And it's like the most humiliating feeling. Because How you're like, fucking condescending is that? Yeah, it was terrible. It was so humiliating. And I remember just like, I just stood there and was like, okay, all right. And I just picked up my stuff and like walked out. It's like, well, I guess I'll go audition at a different club, you know? And shed a couple of tears. <laughs> it was like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, this isn't anything new. And I think too, it's just my experience of growing up in Portland and being around a lot of white people, I guess you just get used to all of the condescending backhanded shit that people say. And you get to a point where your tolerance is so high for how ridiculous people can be 
that when people say things that are just blatantly just obnoxious and stupid and racist, it's interesting because the younger generation is like, that's fucked up and like immediately jump on it. And it's like, you just get so hammered with it over time that you, you almost are like, Oh, you know, I don't have time for this. Right. So you kind of pick and choose your battles. Like, like, eh, you know, that person's fucking annoying and you just kind of like walk away, like, fuck it. It's hard though, because sometimes you go on stage and you're dancing and somebody says something just so gross and, and you're looking at them, but then you have a full stage of people who expect you to, to dance. So, you know, what do you do? You keep doing your job. And so they're just sitting there just staring needles into you. And everybody else is enjoying themselves, and that person is not, and really wants you to know that they don't like you. It sucks. You just try to find a way to survive and not lose your mind. And um, I've surprisingly been able to do okay, but there are plenty of times where I just wanted to, like, take a stool and crack people over the head. (laughs) 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 But you're just like, get the fuck out of here! Uh, I almost wish you did. So... (laughs) Not to push too far into this, but I do want to know, the black woman in America Mm -hmm. can be simultaneously fetishized and scorned. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And when people come into the club, white men, I'm going to say white men, well, I don't know, Mm -hmm. white people, but I'm really envisioning a white man when I say this. Yeah. There are white dudes who walk into a club and they have like a complicated cultural fascination mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. That's um. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My question goes on, but go ahead. <laughs> to answer honestly and truthfully, I would say some of the best customers I've ever had were people who probably fetishized me and my blackness. It's it's tough because there are individuals who, you know, they'll be hanging out in the bar watching the dancers and then they see you and they're like, you are the person I'm spending all my money on because I specifically came here to find someone like you. Hmm. Especially if you're in a club that doesn't have a lot of diversity. You know, often that's how I make my money, just off of people who specifically were seeking. Usually it was... They were really into like Pam Greer, just that kind of look. You know, if I had like the big hair and just the curves, you know, that whole look. Like businessmen who specifically had a thing for like seventies black exploitation, like badass babes. <laughs> it's like Okay. It can be really it can be really difficult to navigate, you know, your intellectual brain and mind and thinking, you're just like, hmm. <laughs> this is problematic. <laughs> just, right, right. But you're also like, I do need this money. So it's like, do you want your bills paid or nah? <laughs> so it's, uh. it's, I know some people are going to hate hearing that, but I think as long as you, you don't feel like you are putting yourself in a position where you're just being exploited. And some people feel like no matter what, you are. And they say that about all dancers, all ethnicities. You know, you're out there dancing, people are exploiting you, etc. There's so many things to unpack about it. And especially as a Black woman, 
you're dealing with all kinds of bullshit. It's like respectability politics, the way you talk, the way you dress, the kind of music you play. I mean, people are holding you to a standard of are you acceptable enough if you fit into these extremely high standards and like rigid ideals they have about what is an acceptable black person and what's not. And I mean, even when I worked in this really nice department store and I wasn't dancing, I would listen to the way customers or coworkers would talk about black people. And they would say to me like, oh, I just don't think of you as black. I mean, you the things you talk about and the way you speak, you're just, you're just not like them. And you're just like, how fucking racist and heinous is this? Yeah. Like, so I'm an acceptable black person. The comments, the unsolicited advice, it's just off the fucking charts. And it's frustrating. But the glimmer of, of beauty, I will say, from when I've stepped out on stage, like another black person will come up to me and they're just like, you are so beautiful. I see you. You're thriving. And you realize how powerful that representation is and what it means. And... One of the best compliments I received the last time that I danced, these two black men came up to me and they're like, girl, we saw you dancing and we just wanted to say you were thriving in this predominantly white space and you're just over here just smiling and just being carefree and amazing and we just wanted to show our love. And I was like, thank you. Yeah. You were beautiful too. You have a blessed day. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, we just had this moment and I was like, yes, the kinfolk. It was just beautiful. It was so powerful and wonderful. I can do it my way. And that's beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. <laughs> that's a very long rant. <laughs> well, maybe, but it's, it was indeed beautiful to hear you go on that rant. And I'm honored to have been part of it. And thank you for being open enough to share all of that with me. Thanks. What you do, prima facie, is complicated. But then you bring into it gender dynamics, mm -hmm. racial dynamics, yeah. and sexual dynamics. And we talked a bit about gender. Mm -hmm. We talked a bit about race. So I'm going to ask you about the sexual dynamics of mm, it all. Totally cool. <laughs> You're on stage. Mm -hmm. Your goal is to arouse, to titillate, mm -hmm. to excite. I have lots of questions about that. The first of which is, how does it feel for you to present yourself as a sexual object, mm -hmm. as a means to excite an audience? When I step out on stage, the last thing on my mind is the arousal of anybody in the audience. I recognize the mechanics of my job, and I understand that peculiar power that a female presenting body has to a viewer in a voyeur. So I just got to a place where I accepted that this was something that I could tolerate that I made the choice to do versus dealing with the kind of sexual harassment or objectification that I would deal with when I was working a nine to five or just existing in the world. Like what somebody is thinking about me in the sexual sense is the last thing on my mind. My mission was like, go out there and make money so I can buy some Swarovski flatbacks. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, but you just understand the nature of like flirtation and you understand the job. It's like you put the suit on, except it's invisible and, you know, people can see you 
sans clothing and you go out and you smile and you do the job, which is, it's a safe space for people to come in to look at you, to objectify you. And if they want to get to know a little bit more about you, they can ask questions and you can answer them however you choose, just like the customer can say whatever they want. They can make up whatever backstory about themselves. It's kind of this mysterious world of fantasy and my sensuality is so far removed from it. <laughs> like, I think that might be a downer for some people, but I literally just feel nothing when I go out there, except when that energy gets high from people liking the way that I dance. And if I connect with a customer in a way that's really comfortable and like we can chat and flirt and have fun and like the whole sensual, like, oh, like I'm titillating you. Yep. I give no shits about anyone's erection. (laughs) (laughs) So far from my mind. Did it take a while to get there? No. When I first ever auditioned, I remember just, I did not want to look in that guy's face. I didn't want anything to do with him. I just wanted his money. I got on stage and I was so young. And like, I think about it now and for him, he enjoyed the fact that I was so nervous and uncomfortable. And he was like, come here, look at me. I want you to look me in the face. I want you to look in my eyes. And that right there is really powerful. I just remember just being so uncomfortable, but I thought, you know what? I need to make money. I'm tired of being poor. I can do this. Hmm. And so you just kind of slowly get better at it at like how you interact with customers how you feel about your own body, then you start to realize like, oh, okay, well, you know, you get to a point where you go to work and you're like, well, naked, I'm just going to sit here and talk about the Rolling Stones (laughs) with (laughs) these group of dudes and, Ah. and people are like staring at you and, and for them, it's a different experience, but for you, you're just like, well, another shift at work, work in the mid, I'll be here till nine (laughs) o'clock. Yeah, now like I can look someone in the eye. It doesn't bother me at all. It's not a problem. It sounds like you really have managed to situate this really strange and dare I say vulnerable situation (laughs) into a certain ideological context and it's given you strength. And I can't help but wonder, Mm -hmm. all right, you've won the game. You were able to make a living at it. And if I'm hearing you right, you know, you've had a good run at it and you're not a victim of the game, (laughs) it seems to me. I hope I'm not. Oh man, you can be a victim at anything though. Yeah. Okay. Well, sure. But at the very least, you seem to have, you have a lot of perspective. Mm -hmm. I guess I, I don't want to sort of presuppose anything. So I'll just ask this question. Do you begrudge the people mm-hmm. who go there? No, oh, no. No? I mean you make you make a living off of them, so you're grateful for their for their patronage, but No, not at all. Is there sort of an objectification that lay at the core of the entire enterprise? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. And wouldn't you thus be frustrated to say the very least by that objectification? Or is my supposition wrong? Is it indeed wrong that the enterprise is necessarily objectifying? Hmm. Well, 
I mean, the whole business exists because people want to look, right? Well, right, but voyeurism isn't necessarily objectification. And I guess that's what I'm trying to push into a little Hmm, bit. True. I mean, I think that... Okay. Yeah, that's what I want to push into. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the enterprise demands objectification just by the very nature of the power structure and the tone and content of what's being presented? Hmm. It's a tough one because like, it's frustrating when you deal with people who have anger or feel compelled to hurt you or like try to physically hurt you. You know, they seek you out to objectify to the point where they could physically cause you harm and we'll try it. So I think we're, it kind of digs deeper into how human beings interact with one another and particularly sex workers and how we like to classify people like these women are good women. These women are bad women or, you know, who is respectable, who's not. And there's so many things at play there. I mean, we could probably talk for hours about that. (laughs) I wouldn't want to like people start, their faces start melting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's definitely beyond good and evil. And I don't want to, to be reductive here. If anything, I hope to really revel in the complexities and the challenges of what you do and your thoughts and your reflections about what you do. So please don't feel like I'm trying Mm -hmm. to like set up a good person, bad person situation. I appreciate that. Thank you. Go ahead, please. Oh, um, well, I was going to say like, I, as a, as a customer, as a person that would go into a business like that, I'm not really somebody who actively seeks out strip clubs to go to. And I've had people say to me when I've gone into clubs with them, um, they're like, oh, this isn't your kind of place, is it? But they didn't know that I, I worked at a strip club or, <laughs> or was a stripper. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I've had a lot of people do that to me over the years. They're like, I didn't know you were a stripper. You don't act like one, which is interesting, too, because it, I think it says a lot about how the media really perpetuates what the stripper, quote unquote, is, like what the personality in the person is. I always think of like the old school burlesque performers where they were like, I was tired of scrubbing floors and I thought, well, shit, I can make $2,000 a week dancing around in my yeah, pants. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Like I went and auditioned at that theater and I got out of Appalachia, you know, <laughs> the money gives you the agency and the freedom to go places that maybe before you didn't, you didn't have the ability to get to. And it can do some pretty incredible things, money, as we yeah. have seen time and time again, what it can do for people, even if they're not even qualified to do the job, they still have the means to hire the people. I feel like this them. might be a reference. It's a trip. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Huh. Oh, really? <laughs> That's really interesting to yeah. me. So I, by way of confessional mm-hmm. and some 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 sharing... And I told this to Johnny in our discussion. While I don't fancy myself prudish and I'm hardly a moralist, I have um, next to no experience in strip clubs or Mm -hmm. with strippers. I had like, you know, those couple like obligatory experiences with bachelors. And I found because, and it's been literally 20 Mm -hmm. years since I've 
had any exposure at all. And 20 years ago, as now, Mm -hmm. I fancied then, I fancy myself now, a pretty hardcore feminist. But my 20, 25-year-old feminist just wouldn't fucking countenance Mm -hmm. enjoying a stripper. Now, (laughs) I've gotten a little more wise and retrospectively... It was chauvinistic of me to assume that the person who was hired to be at the bachelor party or to be on the stage was an object or felt as an object. Mm-hmm. And I was just wrong. And I, and I know that now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will tell you mm-hmm. that perhaps because of the ideological position that I brought to the environment, I found strip clubs to be audaciously objectifying in their intent. Mm -hmm. I really wonder in retrospect if that was just Mm -hmm. me, in fact, who was doing the objectifying. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's possible. Hmm. I think that, I mean, for instance, when I go on stage, like I don't, I would never think of myself like, okay, people just see me as this, thing you know this maybe they can reach out and touch it you know um i i just didn't see myself that way and i know that there are people i've encountered who are like you understand that that's the only thing that people see you as i'm like (laughs) well that's delightfully condescending but really you know the job if you do the job and if you actually work in the place you work in the bar you work in the club you understand the dynamics of how it operates then you know that it is a business and the business that they're trying to make money off of is they need the dancers to be there, make the money, pay stage fees, bartenders, cocktailers, same thing, sell booze. It's got to be a party atmosphere. Get the people in. People got to feel good. They got to have a good time. Maybe get some good reviews written about your club and hopefully everybody can go home happy. Nobody has to deal with the police. (laughs) Because also, too, it can feel kind of predatory to people who come in and are like, all these people just want my money. Which, yes, it's true. Like, people there are motivated for money. You're kind of juggling them feeling almost objectified. Because often I feel like I would deal with customers that felt like we were objectifying them. (laughs) Right. Like, oh, you're just being nice to me because you want all my cash. And it's like, sure, of course I'm here because I do want to get paid but I do like to have interactions with individuals that are not, they're not painful for me and they're not painful for you. And like your dream customer is someone who comes in, they understand what the job is. They understand that you work for tips. You're not making an hourly wage. You don't have, you know, sick pay. (laughs) It's like you are solely responsible, your own entity to create as much revenue as possible in the time that you were there Hopefully don't get injured and hopefully you have some good interactions with people where you can leave at night where you're not replaying, you know, a customer calling you names or, you know, just dealing with somebody's anger or frustration or whatever it is that they feel comfortable taking out on you. It's really just watching everybody operate in this like gray area of humanity. (laughs) Yeah, it is a bit of a gray Um, area. You know, and social lubricant of our times, apply people with booze, then they're probably going to be a little bit more open to having a bunch of people jump in their lap and joke around with them and 
it can be a really great environment where you can just kind of hang out and just be yourself. So you work at clubs where you make your nut doing lap dances. Those clubs exist in Portland also? A lot of clubs operate with dances. Most of the clubs I've worked at were really small. So you had to make a lot of money on stage, but you could also give dances too. But there would maybe be like eight girls working a night. And so you're not you're not off stage for like three hours where you're just roaming the floor, like hustling dances or like trying to hustle VIPs or anything. I mean, each club is a little different, but most of the places that I worked were a balance of the two. You can make really great money on stage and you could also make money giving dances too. Can I ask a question about giving dances? Sure. Um, I don't know. What's it like? <laughs> Um, I mean, you kind of have your moves that you do. You just kind of pick up the things that work for you and you just do them all the time. Like you have your set moves and you just kind of continue to do them. So, um, whatever the rules of the club that you're working at are and how comfortable you are with the person you're dancing for, each dancer creates their own boundaries. I mean, as an individual, you just have boundaries in general. So what you are comfortable doing is what you will do. When I started dancing, you had to have like a certain amount of feet away from the customer if you gave a dance. And so they were just like air dances. And most of the places I've worked at have had pretty strict rules about how dances are done. And, you know, bouncers are there kind of overseeing. So they'll stand outside of the curtain maybe check in to see how you're doing, you know, making sure that the customer isn't getting handsy. That was another big one. Like you're not supposed to touch the dancers, which people constantly are always trying to break the rules. <laughs> like, you know, different cities have different rules too. Some clubs are like, you can get all up on a customer, the customer can grab you. Um, so it's, it's different depending on where you, where you are and what city you are and what club you're at. And also the individual dancer. Tria, I get the sense from you that burlesque is an object of great affection for you, perhaps even love. And I also get the sense from you that when it comes to strip clubs, Mm -hmm. cash is king. Yeah. And you're there to make a buck so you can enjoy a certain lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And somewhat. Somewhat. So I want to know the other side of that. I mean, yeah. do, you, do you love it? Do you have a real affection for it? I mean, it gave me the freedom to live in a way that I think most people dream about. And I, I have lifelong friends that I absolutely adore. I feel like the community that I do have from my life as a stripper has been, it's just been so incredibly strong And we often will take care of each other because people kind of look at us and we're kind of a subculture that, you know, oh, the demimonde, you know, look at these people. They're just terrible. And it's really sad because the community of dance that I feel that I'm a part of is, is really remarkable and just full of these brilliant, powerful people who 
just go above and beyond to help one another and to also outreach into communities outside of just the one that they're working in or or have been a part of. So, you know, I, I worked with dancers that would do Meals on Wheels. They'd work a night shift and then wake up like three hours later and go deliver food to the elderly. And then with so many people I know who have like a foster network for stray animals and the things that we do to take care of one another when people's houses burn down or it's really cool. And I really stress that you know what it's like if you do it. And if you were from the outside looking in, it might look a particular way. It might look strange or peculiar or scary even, but when you do it and you find the people that you fit in with, then you really can meet some just wonderful friends for life and people who really do love you. And yeah, I mean, we take care of each other. Even when like the law gets involved, we have to, we look out for each other when people get arrested, we look out for each other and people's kids and it's its own universe. And uh, I do love performing and I do love pole tricks. I love what I physically could do as a dancer. It was just me just my soul physical self dancing to music and the interpretation of the music with my body. And that was it. And that to me is like, there's a level of being able to make a song manifest itself within you without any other prop, without anything else, but just your body is really powerful. And I think I got addicted to that and I will never not love that. And that's what stripping really did do for me, too, to open that up for me. That is beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I totally feel it. You know, you're talking about music and community and how music and community give a sense of empowerment, yeah. well-earned empowerment. But I have to share with our audience that you're on the path to exiting mm -hmm. this community. Yeah. And I want to give you a chance, since you're going to be transitioning out of this splendid career of yours as a dancer, I want to give you a chance to talk about how it feels to be moving on. How does it feel to be moving on? It feels really good. It feels right. I physically can't do, I can't do the job really anymore, um, that's where uh, I, I see some of the the younger ladies wearing the knee pads. And let me tell you, my friends, that is a very, very important thing to do. <laughs> um, wearing stilettos and doing the kind of dancing that I was doing, it destroys your joints. So I feel very ready for it. I was more than happy to say goodbye. And also, too, I, I recognize my own set of privileges you know, I make art and occasionally, you know, I, I still perform burlesque, but I, I spend my days with my child and I get to you know, do preschool stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> the switch is, is really, it's really nice. And I like where I'm at and I'm, I'm very grateful for the years in the experience I had dancing and what it gave me. And so, yeah, I think it's perfect time for me to bid adieu. Can I ask you, what do you hope that your legacy is in the Portland strip club and burlesque scenes? You know, 
I think I just would hope that people who interacted with me or saw me perform, whether it was on a burlesque stage or it was, you know, dancing at the club for a shift, I would hope that they, they enjoyed what I did and, you know, they had a good time and maybe we had a good conversation. So I tip my hat to the dancers of the world because strip clubs are truly a hub for every type of person of every type of profession and personality you can think of. So I've had wonderful experiences. I've traveled and I've done, I've done it my way. I feel wonderful about that. And I don't feel shame because I danced around sans clothing and made the money I made and invested and did the things that I did. It's fine because it's, it's definitely not the easiest job. It is hard on your body and it can be hard on you. I just hope that people think I'm a nice person, <laughs> you know? You clearly are. No, oh, thank you. In addition to being nice, you're insightful and you're empathic and you are large and you contain multitudes. And our listeners will surely agree. But I can't let you leave the Studs podcast mm-hmm. without offering me two stories. Sure. Can you share with us the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure? Maybe start with a failure so that we could end on a note of triumph. (laughs) A professional failure. God, I've made so many stupid choices (laughs) in my early 20s. (laughs) You and me both. You and me both. Um, um, I really can't say that I had like a professional failure besides like falling on stage and just looking really stupid. Did you fall on stage? Did you ever fall off stage? Oh my God. Yeah. Fallen off stage. Um, one time I did, I was, I was working like a day shift and there was like a golf tournament that came in. These guys were all hanging out and the stage that I was dancing on was this like really raised circular platform. And then there, there were these big armchairs that kind of would surround the stage. And so there was like a little rack, which is just like a, a shelf type thing that sticks out. So people could put their drinks or food or whatever. And then the stage was higher above that. So you were like towering over a customer. When you look down at them, they were definitely below you. And I remember just being up there and I was dancing and I, I just remember like whipping my hair around and turning around and I stood up at the same time and I had my back to the customer and I ended up coming up too fast and I lost my balance. And you know, when you like tip backwards in a, in a rocking chair too far. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's exactly yeah. what happened. Oh, no. And I just went, whew, no. and just flew right off the stage, no. <laughs> but I landed in the guy's lap. <laughs> It was, I was so ready for it. The saving grace of that, huh? Oh my God, right? Because if I busted my ass, they would have been like, this bitch. (laughs) 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 They'd be like, get her out of here. All right, give me some success. Success? You know, I've had a lot of really awesome experiences dancing where like the audience would just went nuts and were just killer. Um, One time dancing at Mary's, there was like, I think it was a tattoo convention came in and that place is really small. At the time, I, I was dancing to a lot of like bad brains and stuff. Nice. And I, I think I put like eye against eye on and the guys in the audience just went apeshit. They were just like, what? <laughs> and like, what? 
and, <laughs> and so I was dancing and just doing my thing and having a blast and and like though they just loved it they just were loving it so I just just dove into my teenage self and like played like black flag and just went for it and everybody in the bar just went Sandria Sandria and they're all just like screaming and it was the coolest shit ever. Hmm. It's like all these drunken weirdos. Yeah. But they were great. And we were just, we just had fun. And I was like stone sober and just loving it. And they were really cool. That was a that was a really good memory. Good old Mary's fun. Yeah, that sounds like a smashing success indeed. <laughs> Drea Dore. Yeah. Thank you for being on the podcast. I'm grateful for your honesty. Oh, you're so welcome. For your vulnerability. I'm grateful for your story. No, oh, thank you. I know you left the Portland strip club scene better than you found it. Yes. And I dare say that you left this podcast better than you found oh, it. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being with me. I'm wicked grateful. Well, thank you for having me. I wish I could have shouted out Haymarket Pole Collective because they're doing some incredible stuff to combat racism and to create a more equitable workplace for dancers in the Portland area. So I highly recommend checking them out. I will link to them in our show notes. Sound good to you? That sounds perfect. Thank you so much. Holy shit. That was titillating, wasn't it? Not in that way. You perverts, she's amazing. That, my friends, is what you call a season opener. All right, so subscribe and leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you, and you got the means to give a few, hop over to patreon.com studs. Or don't. Whatever. That was fun. I'll see you next week. You know, your future is in fucking podcasting. You know that, right? <laughs> I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>